Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality and geekdom by celebrating the diverse and their accomplishments. We're on the Relay Podcasting Network, and I'm your host, Aline Sims. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Aki Braun. Aki, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm pretty well. Um, Aki, who are you? I am a woman who travels and programs and knits and looks at the sky. Ah, those are a lot of things that a lot of my friends do. I do some of those things. Um, I actually was introduced to you by a listener who emailed and said, hey, I worked with Aki um, and, and we worked for President Obama and she'd be really interesting for you to talk to. Um, so since that was my introduction to you, uh, what did you do for, for Obama and for how long? Um, I worked on the 2012 re-election campaign. Um, so I, I worked for about a year on the campaign. I did a whole handful of small, rapidly deployed microsites, and I also worked pretty heavily on BarackObama.com. So small, rapidly deployed microsites, what does that mean? So we'd, if, if, an, if an issue came up or if a politician made a massive gaffe that we wanted to take advantage of or that kind of thing, we would very quickly get together, come up with ideas on content, on design, try to you know, build a, a jet while taking off the runway um, <laughs> and deploy as quickly as possible. So do, did you do front-end development or back-end development or, or a little of both? And is that what you do now as well? I do. The vast majority of my work is front-end development. I, I've, I don't think I've ever had a job where I didn't do some back-end development. Um, I used to be more of a full-stack programmer, but these days I do mostly front-end. So... What is it like working for a presidential campaign? I have this very probably Hollywood view of of what it feels like and what it seems like, which is basically, you know, it, it's it's crunch time. It's election day. And, you know, like everybody's in the office, like trying to eke out votes and they all are frazzled and terrified and excited and. Um, it's just chaos all the time. Is that, is that reality or, or what is it like? That's sort of reality. Although yeah. I have to say election day was one of the most chill days we had of the year I was there. I'd, I'd say, I'd say it's equal parts, the most amazing experience of your life and absolute torture and just awful. So were you based in Washington while you were working the campaign or were you in another office somewhere? I was at campaign headquarters, which was in Chicago, Illinois. In Chicago. Okay. And how did you get involved? Like how, how is this a thing that happened for you? It's actually, I think it's a kind of funny story. I was at a bar camp, which is kind of the, the ultimate unconference. It's very open and and flexible conference where people just sort of go and learn and teach whatever they want to know. And I, I, I kept on going to a lot of the technical sessions because there's also a lot of non-technical sessions. I in fact, I in fact hosted a session on learning how to knit. Um, but I kept on going to the, the technical sessions, and there was somebody else who kept on going to all the technical sessions. And at one point, he says, "I swear, I'm not, I'm not following you." And we get to talking, and he says, "I work, I work for the president. I work on on the election campaign." And I thought, that, that, that's a thing that people can do? <laughs> it just, it had never even occurred to me as right. a, I mean, of course, just think people had, people can do, but it never even occurred to me. Um, but, but anyway, this, this guy became a really good friend of mine and he encouraged me to apply, which I kind of did on a lark. I didn't really think I was qualified, but I thought it would be good experience, good interviewing experience. And um, eventually I, I got the job. That's not something I've ever I've ever spoken to anyone else, and they've said, "Oh, I thought I'd apply for the presidential campaign on a lark, and you know, got the job." I it, well, you know, to be to be fair, the team I was on wasn't the same as the the team that had you know all of the the startup people who had been in the industry mm. for fifteen years or whatever. Um, we 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 trended a little bit less experienced, not experienced by any means, but a little bit less experienced than than the team that got, you know, the most press. That's really interesting though. I, 
I always think of doing a job like that as being something you're recruited to do and not something that you apply to do. So that's actually, that's an interesting uh, perspective. You're, you're not wrong. Um, so the, the person who emailed you in the first place to introduce us, he was my boss and he did some really amazing things when it came to building a diverse team. And a big part of that meant he didn't just simply go out and seek out the people he already knew who were just like him. Um, as opposed to, there was another pretty big technology team that was friends of friends of friends of friends, and it was not a very diverse team. Huh. That's, I, I'm totally going to deadpan this. That's really shocking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, which is, which is, okay, I guess I should explain myself in case people are listening and, and don't get my sense of humor. Um, it's what we're seeing in tech. What we see in tech right now is very homogenous groups of people because, you know, people hire friends who hire friends who hire friends and everybody ends up looking very similar and having very similar perspectives. And so, um, when, I don't know. I've had this experience where I've applied at companies uh, where I don't look like people there and I'm not hired. Um, so this this is a thing in tech right now. So I think it's really cool that... Isn't it funny how that happens? Right? It's really weird. Completely unintuitive, too. <laughs> well, I, I have to say that the team that, that Daniel put together, we were... I think we did the math one day. We were like 60% queer... 20 or 25 percent people of color, um, uh, several women of a, 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 a reasonably small team that is several women. So it was, of course, we could always do better because one can always do better. But it was a pretty, pretty diverse team. And I was really proud to be on it. So I wonder if there are lessons that we could take away from that and, you know, kind of help the industry as a whole, because it seems like, um, well, you said the word startup earlier, and I know that that's how the the campaign was run. It was, you know, very startup-y, but still managed to have a small team with with not all white men, straight white men on it. Um, so I wonder, you know, I don't know. So part of the reason I'm stumbling through this is I've been thinking a lot about interviews and interviewing and how... Um, how the bias of the interview affects or interviewer affects things. And I'm still forming my thoughts on this, which is kind of why I've headed down this road is like, how do we help people put that aside so that we can form diverse teams? This is a thing I think about a lot too. Um, not least which because I have done three year long contract jobs in a row, which means I probably interview for jobs more than most people do. And uh, I, I've definitely put a lot of thought into this. It's it's really hard. Uh, one thing I've seen that's pretty effective for the first step before you get even get into the room with the interviewer is having someone on the team try to wipe all reference of gender, of race, anything like that from uh, resumes when going through and, and choosing who gets to be brought in for an interview. That has been pretty effective in bringing at least a more diverse interview pool to start with. That's interesting. And that's actually something that um, I've seen companies doing a little bit more, too, as I, you know, looking around at different job sites and that kind of thing, because it's it's a weird thing that I find entertaining um, and informative. And I have seen a lot of like removing identifying information or or. Um, potentially biasing information. Yeah, a lot of conferences do that too for their CFPs. Interesting. Well, that's a good step. But to to go back, I'd like to know uh what is it like what is it like to interview for a position working for the current president to try to help him become president again? Like, how do you go into an er interview like that? Uh, in retrospect, woefully unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, I was definitely relying a lot on, um, on smiling through my phone call. <laughs> um, I think, well, one of the things that I really appreciated about, about Daniel is that he, um, 
he took time to kind of get a feel for the person he was interviewing and tried to have a separate step without a ton of uh, one-on-one interaction for a technical test. And even the technical technical test that I ended up doing, which is kind of an online thing, I mean, I blew a lot of the questions, but because I sort of communicated my thought process on how I was getting there, that that was enough for him to see, you know, what the potential was and what, you know, that, that and I think, I mean, he was well aware of the fact that a lot of time women don't apply for a job unless they meet every single qualification where men will apply for a job if they meet one or two. So I think him being able to take a look at that and recognize the potential people have and where he could fit them in in a way that makes them be, be get better at what they do and also be an asset to the team was, I mean, it was a huge move for the whole team. That is the hallmark of an amazing manager. It sounds like he was chosen really, really well. Oh my gosh, he was great. <laughs> so what is your highlight of your year working in that position? That is, I don't think anybody has ever asked me that question before. Oh, really? <laughs> um, well, I mean, as far as, as far as just the experience goes, I think being told that we had to run, we, so we were on election day, we were at, at headquarters. Um, I was working in kind of a, kind of a war room to make sure people had access to their polling place. And we had been told at a certain time we would all pop on the buses to head to McCormick Place, which is where the victory party was going to be, um, and not to ask if we were going early, or not, you know, not to bug them. They'd let us know where we were going. And so we're, we're kind of watching the results come in, and, you know, a state will get called, a state will get called. And then out of nowhere, the, the leaders of the campaign start running through start running through the headquarters yelling at people like drop everything get on the bus right now because I, I think they knew that Florida was about to be called but they couldn't say it <laughs> so that was pretty amazing realizing that we had to rush to McCormick so that we were there when we won was wow pretty cool. that, that had to have been some adrenaline so much adrenaline yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, but from a more from a more professional standpoint, uh, one of the first projects I worked on, which I kind of continued to usher through the entire year, was a website called Own Your Vote Wisconsin. I'm originally from Wisconsin, and once I had moved to Chicago for the for the election, they started changing a lot of voting laws, basically trying to disenfranchise anybody who would vote against Scott Walker in the recall, and. Uh, so getting, getting to work on this project that was really important to me for like the land that I come from was was pretty special. We went through a lot of revisions as, as voting loss changes and making sure we had up-to-date information. People really used that website, and that was it was really rewarding. That's really, really neat. And it really, that kind of cause really resonates with me anyway is, um, Arizona in the Phoenix area especially had some issues with the primaries this year. And I'm I'm a little bit worried about how how actual how polling day, how actual voting day is going to go. Like in, in the primary, we had people lined up for five or six hours to vote. And so I'm like, I, I hope they get I hope. I hope this is better in November because um, I think I'm, I'm kind of at a point where I'm like, okay, every vote counts and we need to get as many people through the door as we can, but I don't know what's being done about it. And I haven't looked into it and that's something that I should do. Just be prepared to run into a lot of brick walls. It's, it's important to advocate and it's important to do that work, but it's also, there are a lot of setbacks when you're trying to make a change, when you're trying to get all the information, trying to get all the information out. It's It can be really frustrating, but it is so rewarding. So what was the most challenging part of, of the job? I mean, so you've already talked about kind of just deploying and hoping that things worked out, which I think, I don't know, I've definitely been in situations where I've done that. Um, and I haven't worked for you know, a high stakes campaign at all, but were there other, other challenges that you had to overcome and how did you, how did you overcome them? Well, there was definitely, there were, there was a project I worked on that I was just falling farther and farther behind. And I just, I don't think I had quite the level of experience required to turn around and say, 
I need help with this or I, I you know, I, I can't do this on my own. I, I, that does require a certain amount of experience is being able to know when you're, you know, over your head. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty challenging. It was really stressful. I had a lot of really late nights in the summer of 2012. But um, ultimately, once again, uh, that manager, Daniel, he came to me and said, hey, let's talk about what's, what's taking you so long. And once I told him, I, he was just he was just incredible. He and, uh, and a team lead, Jeffrey Loudon, the two of them really helped me to kind of get the finishing touches on this project. That's so cool. Yeah, I definitely agree that sometimes you get in. I've experienced this in a lot of different things in my life. Like I've been in over my head and not realized it until I was out or until I had help or had someone who was like, oh, hey, you know, it seems like you're experiencing this thing, these things. Have you considered that maybe you need some help right now? Um, so it was really cool that you had someone who could kind of help you recognize that and work through it. Yeah, it was, it was definitely, uh, I mean, it was just, it was just what I needed. It was great. That's really good to hear. So one of the things I was telling you before, before we started recording, one of the things that I think is really interesting, um, is talking to people about things that, is, is very different from me and the way I approach the world and, and the way I feel comfortable in the world. That's a lot of why I have this podcast. And so one thing, one way in which you and I differ is that you are currently, and I don't know for how long, um, how long you've done this and how long you're going to continue, but you are kind of a nomad. I am in fact nomad. Uh, my partner and I live in a 36 foot RV and we travel state parks or, or national forests, or um, we were in my sister's driveway last weekend. <laughs> so how long have you lived in a trailer? In, 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 oh. <laughs> so we, we first purchased the RV on Halloween of last year and spent some time renovating. Okay. Moved into it full-time in February. So at that point, we were putting our finishing touches on the renovations and in the beginning of June of this year we headed on the road oh so it's a pretty new experience for you how do you like it I love it yeah I love it so much it's definitely hard there are challenges um in fact even just making sure I have good enough bandwidth to have this conversation is is not it's not a simple task mm-hmm. <laughs> although I'm getting better at that kind of thing you learn as you go absolutely yeah um actually one of my one of my friends, one of my former coworkers has been nomadic for two years. Um, he bought, uh, I don't even know, I guess it's not a pop-up trailer, but he has a, a Jeep and a trailer and he's been all over kind of the Western U S. Um, and he's done this, you know, as long as I've known him and he absolutely loves it. Uh, but I like having a house and space. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, there were, there were a small handful of different reasons why my, my partner and I ultimately decided this is the way we wanted to go. But not for nothing, one of them was we have this land and our next step was the land house. And to build a house requires a mortgage. Um, and that sounds terrifying. Scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is also that. So, um, so going on the road is a nice way to avoid a mortgage. Ah, I like it. <laughs> Well, and I don't know, you get to have an experience that so few people have. I mean, I, I know that there's like the subculture of people who are doing this. And I know that people form a lot of bonds and, and, and friendships as they kind of travel the world and they plan on meeting up at different, you know, points along their journey. But there's kind of this beauty to, I don't know, to living your life, like to being able to pick up and do what you want to do and not have to worry about a lot of logistical things. Ah, but we do worry about a lot of different logistical things. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about that. What Wi-Fi aside, what are cell signals too? What, um, what kind of planning goes into deciding what your next destination is going to be? That's actually a big part of it. Um, so we have we have um, a good a good amount of data with T-Mobile as well as a MyFi with Verizon. And one of the things that goes into our decision-making process is cell coverage for a place, whether it has at least one of the two, T-Mobile or Verizon. Uh, we have a 30-foot 
a deployable antenna with a cellular booster at the end. So we can get a much better signal than we would otherwise. And we have stated a few different campgrounds that have Wi-Fi. So we have a we have basically an external Wi-Fi antenna on the roof of our RV that um, that takes a, sig- a signal and, and rebroadcasts it inside the RV for us. Oh, nice. Um, and I guess I kind of jumped the gun here. What kind of planning goes into deciding to be nomadic? Because it's it's not it's really not a small undertaking to, you know, I don't know if you have a house, sell your house, decide where your possessions are going to go. Like, do you get a trailer? Do you store them? Do you, you know, how do you do that? Um, and then you bought something and renovated it. Um, and then what do you do if you're on the road and something happens, you know, you need to have some mechanical knowledge. So, so how did you approach those kinds of things or, or approach embarking upon this endeavor? So we, I, uh, many, many, many years ago, before I met my partner, I owned a, a school bus. I actually owned two, two school buses. And I never got the opportunity to fully, fully make them into like proper RV campers. Um, I always wanted to. And so my partner and I have talked about this for many years, talked about, about doing it, at least getting a school bus and making it into an RV, whether or not we lived there full time. Um, so... This time around, just uh, with the timing of, we had originally arranged some builders to build us a house that was very, very environmentally friendly, and they weren't able to, they weren't able to do the building after all. And so a bunch of events came together that just made the timing right for us. So getting rid of things was surprisingly easy. (laughs) Uh, We did, I mean, we did keep some things. We have a 1974 Carmen Ghia that's in storage. Um... We have a, a couch and, you know, some mementos, personal things, and our, our big vacuum cleaner. You know, we don't need that in the RV, but, but it's too expensive to just to just not, have, like, to just get rid of. So we have a small storage space that has the few things that we decided to keep but not take with us. Mm-hmm. But overall, it was it was surprisingly easy to get rid of lots and lots of things. And uh, so when, once we did that, it was a matter of figuring out how much space we would need for the two of us and our cats. We both work from home, so we needed to we needed to get uh, an RV that had space for us to build desks into, mm-hmm. and then you know have good workspaces. Um, I think those were those were the big decisions. Um, I mean, there was a lot of other little little things, but I mean, it's not not dissimilar to the, the questions that come up when you're renting a new apartment or when you're buying a car, just the two of them at the same time. Interesting. That's an interesting way to look at it. So are you staying, are you planning on staying in places for very long? Like my friend, he usually spends like two or three weeks really exploring an area before he moves on. Um, is that something you're going to do? Are you playing it by ear? Um, how, how are you, kind of deciding how long you stay in an area? Kind of a little bit of both, actually. Um, what we really want to do is to spend two or three weeks in any given place. That's that's kind of our goal. But at the same time, right now we're traveling um, in a region where we both have friends and family. So it's a lot harder because we kind of, we've got, we kind of want to keep moving so we get to see everyone before the summer is over. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're right now we're more, more closely spending about a week in a, in a given place. But what we do is we, we research um, between state and local parks and national parks and also private campgrounds, figuring out, you know, proximity to, right now specifically proximity to friends and family as well as internet access um and activities we're, we're we had a few um minor crises the first few weeks we were on the road uh you know just kind of one of those one of those murphy law murphy's law things anything that could go wrong in those first few weeks really did and so now we're at a point where we really want to start spending our weekends doing something new and something fun and something, you know, important to where we, where we are. So we're, we're planning going boating next weekend. And I think this weekend we're going to maybe go for a hike or go rock climbing and start doing more, more 
hyper-local things is our goal. What a neat way to explore the world. I think I said that earlier, but I mean, there is something really uh, romantic about it, I guess. It definitely is. And I'm pretty excited. I got, I didn't even know this was a thing until very recently. Um, I got a national parks passport, which you can get. And at every national park, well, almost every national park or national monument or, you know, anything that's administered by the national park service, you can get uh, a stamp on your passport, you know, like a cancellation stamp. So I have, I, I already have, I think, three national parks down, and I want I want to fill it now. Now that I have it, I want to be a completionist about it. Yeah, that's a really neat memento. And um, so my my brother-in-law uh, got us a national parks pass for Christmas last year, knowing that we were going on this trip. So that's been that's been really helpful. It's it's been a really great gift. If you know anybody who is a full-time nomad, that's a great gift. That's so cool. I don't know. I don't know. I do this a lot where I talk to people about what they're doing and, and I'm like, oh, that would be really, really, really neat to do. And I don't know. I need to visit more of the world. But um, I don't know. I think about travel and how expensive it is and it's hard to, you know, take time off of work or whatever. And it's exhausting. And I don't know. This way you get to decide. You get to decide. You're not beholden to the to airlines and rental car companies and all of that, you just can go. And that's really cool. That's a really big part of it is this puts in a position where, you know, we're not paying rent. So we no longer have that expense, which makes, which makes spending, you know, 18 bucks a night on a campsite really, really attainable for if we want to stay there the whole month, that's, that's very affordable as compared to, you know, when you're, when you're flying around and you're at hotels, that all adds up and you're still paying rent at home, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really neat. So you've been doing this a month. You had kind of a couple of rough weeks, but uh, I guess, again, I'm going to go back to those questions. Like, what has surprised you about this experience so far? I'd say one big thing that has surprised me is how quickly my partner and I have bounced back from the couple of pretty discouraging moments we've had. Um, You know, I think a lot of this I had pretty pretty reasonable expectations, pretty, pretty realistic expectations of how it was going to be and which I had high expectations and it's been great, but I'm really impressed by, you know, when something has gone wrong, our ability to bounce back from it has been something I'm really proud of. I'm really happy with. So you're kind of northerly now. Is your plan to get out of the snow in the winter and kind of explore, like I'm in, I'm in Phoenix. So Summer is a bad time to come explore these regions, <laughs> but it's really, really lovely in the winter to uh, to go to Sedona and uh, like the Superstition Mountains and that kind of thing are all really neat. So is that kind of your plan is to to chase seasonality as you go? Oh, yeah, we are definite snowbirds. And really, I, <laughs> I am a definite snowbird. My, my partner is, uh, he's very supportive of my snowbirdism. <laughs> but, um, we, we did. We used to live in Wisconsin, and there was a, a particular winter a few years back where the wind chill was below zero for every single day for six weeks straight. And I just said, I can't take this anymore. And so that summer we moved to Los Angeles, and has, so we don't, we don't go, we don't do winter anymore. I don't do winter anymore. So we'll be in the Great Lakes region for probably until, I don't know, the end of August-ish, and then start heading south again. Um, we plan on being back in Southern California by the end of October for a family family event, and then we may spend the rest of the winter at our at our land out in the desert, or we may do more exploring of the Southern U.S. because it won't be winter. Well, won't be won't be too wintry. <laughs> right. That's actually part of the reason I ended up in Phoenix, as I grew up in Colorado, and I was like, I never ever want to drive on snow again. I never want to deal with slick roads again. Um, And so that's why I've been here for so long. I feel that. Yeah, I bet you, I bet. We'll get back to the episode in just a second, but I wanted to let you know that this episode of Less Than or Equal is brought to you by Agenda Minder. If you're like me, you have more meetings than ever before, and you know that bad meetings are a waste of time. You may also have come to realize, like I have, that good meetings only come when you plan for them. 
Agenda Minder is an app for your Mac, and it helps you make meetings better. It's a personal productivity tool for you to use to plan what you need to talk about in your meetings and to help you focus on what you want to accomplish. Agenda Minder stays out of your way with simple controls and a clean look. You can quickly add meetings and agenda items, capture the objective, and any notes you need in preparation for your meetings. Knowing all of this up front helps you run things so much more smoothly. You can quickly find the meeting you're looking for by sorting them by name or date, and you can even use filters to show you what's coming up today, this week, or even next week. Agenda Minder was created by a Fortune 50 manager with over 20 years of experience. They got tired of meetings being a waste of their time and realized that simple preparation improves meetings and Agenda Minder is what they came up with to help them fix it. Agenda Minder lets you drop in the emails you receive to help easily set agenda items. You'll always be prepared for those tricky questions. You can easily send agenda items to everyone involved in your upcoming meeting and track what's accomplished before you set any action items. Remember, a meeting is only as good as its agenda. Check out Agenda Minder from Internodal today at internodal.xyz equal. And you can also find it on the Mac App Store. Thanks so much to Agenda Minder for their support of Less Than or Equal and all of Relay FM. So... So the other one of the other things you mentioned um, when we started talking is that you are a knitter, and something I have wondered is why why so many of the technical people I know are knitters or crocheters. Do you have a theory for that? Because men, you know, people of all genders, I know who knit and crochet or photography. It seems like it's one or the other. And I think it's really interesting that we all seem to be drawn to this, uh, like there's a Venn diagram of photography, knitting and tech careers. You know, as far as the knitting and crocheting goes, I can say I have, I know a lot of people and, uh, and the same, I know people of all genders who are knitters or crocheters and also work in tech. And so I've, I've put some thought into this. And the thing I've come, the, the deduction I've come to, uh, at least for why it's so appealing to me, and, I, and kind of this kind of resonates, I find, is it's, knitting is not dissimilar to coding. Uh, there is, you know, there are patterns. There are very binary ways of, of, of there are very binary ways of addressing things. You know, you can do a thing or not do a thing. You know, for a, for example, in knitting, you can knit or you can curl. Um, so there's there's a lot of, of like the pattern the pattern matching that one would do in programming is not dissimilar in knitting, and you get something beautiful, you get art out of it, or even something usable or wearable, which is incredibly fulfilling when your job is to just sit at a computer and type on a keyboard all day. Yeah, I th- I think that that definitely kind of plays into it is uh, it, it tickles that part of the brain that um, especially for programmers, I think, where it's like you put in you put in your inputs and you get an output and sometimes it doesn't go the way you expect. But more or less, you know, things are going to happen <laughs> the way because, you know, it's all just a set of instructions. Um, so I think that that's really appealing. And then you get the the tactile bit of it that you don't necessarily get when you're, when you're coding and um, you have something fun at the end too, that's actually tangible and maybe can show to people who aren't technical. Absolutely. And you know, that's another thing as for the, for the most part, when you're programming and something goes wrong, it is because of something you did that you can fix for the most part. And that is just like knitting and crocheting when you're doing it and something goes wrong the vast majority of the time it's because something that you did while following the pattern or whatnot and it's something you can fix and that that's a really good feeling for I think a lot of us who need to be able to you know figure out what happened and figure out how to make it not happen that's interesting and I think that applies to photography too especially with the rise of of accessibility and digital things is that you know you can see the picture and you can fiddle with settings and, and get a different result, even if you have the same scenario in front of you. Sure. That makes sense. Um, so what, is there a particular kind of thing that you like to, to knit? Like, I know I have friends who, um, they really like 
blankets. Um, but you know, I have a friend who likes making little, little monsters and that's kind of her thing. Um, do you like all sorts of projects or? I definitely like, uh, a bit of variety. I prefer knitting things in the round as opposed to knitting things flat. I'm not totally sure why it's, but it's just always been a thing. I've always really preferred knitting in the round. Um, I have done all sorts of projects. I've done silly things. Like I, I knitted a, a pair of cream pies for a wedding gift to a couple once. Um, I've also done, you know, sweaters and scarves and hats and the like. Basically, the only thing that I am not really into knitting is socks because they are really hard. Yeah, because you got to do like the bendy bits and the... Mm-mm. The heel flap, they call it. Yeah. Uh, nope. So, so here's... How did you get into knitting? My grandmother tried to teach me how to knit when I was little and it didn't go very well because uh, we are stubborn in two very head buddy ways. <laughs> but how did how did you get started with it? When I was little, I was a pretty sick kid and I spent a lot of time in hospitals and that gets really, really boring. Uh, so my mother taught me how to crochet and that I, I, I enjoyed crocheting a lot. I, I started making things and my grandmother, uh, she said, well, I can teach you how to knit. <laughs> and so my grandmother taught me how to knit. I think, I think my grandma was disappointed that my mom had never picked up knitting. Uh, my mom still crochets, though. She crocheted me a blanket a few years back for Christmas. It's just incredible. But so my grandmother taught me how to knit, and I started knitting, you know, in a hospital bed or whatever. It was a great way to pass the time. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you were in the hospital a lot, but at least something came out of it, like a, a lifelong hobby. Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's a funny thing about things that happen when you're a kid. They just seem normal because you don't know mm-hmm. anything else. So it wasn't particularly traumatic for me to spend a lot of time in the hospital. It was just normal. But it gave me something to do while I was in the hospital, which was great. That's interesting. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about people saying, oh, you should be proud about this thing. And um, I don't know, maybe this is something you should, you, you get like, oh, you worked for, you know, the presidential, a successful presidential campaign and you had a very key role in that. You should be proud of that. And to me, things, people are like, oh, you have this podcast. You should be proud of that. And it's like, it's just a thing I do. Um, it, I'm, I'm glad I do it. I learn a lot. I think that it's good, but I don't know that it's necessarily like these things are things I'm proud of. And I also feel that way about childhood experiences. Like I tell people I was really sick. Um, I was in and out of the hospital, uh, with like pneumonia and stuff when I was like two to four years old. And I remember some of those experiences and people are like, Oh, that's awful. And it's like, well, it's just, it's what happened. Absolutely. So like I said, when you're, when you're a kid, you don't yet have the background knowledge to for a lot of things that are happening to really think about them as you know bad or good. They just are. Yeah. So it like like it wasn't traumatic at all. It was just it was just how luck was, and that's okay. So, last thing I think I'd like to talk to you about is contracting because um, I've been a freelancer for the past. Uh, I guess little over two years, I've been a full-time freelancer. Um, and that's something that you've been doing for a while, right? No, I, I take full-time jobs. I just keep taking one year long. Uh, jobs. Okay. <laughs> so that is a little bit different for sure. Um, but still that does leave a little bit of, I think people, the, the goal, at least that I grew up with was to have like a forever job where, you know, I'd, you know, I think this is getting less, less and less common, but you work somewhere for 40 years and then you retire and whatever. Um, so as you do when your contracts, I don't know what I'm trying to ask. How do you, um, does that feel secure to you, I guess? Oh God, no, it does not feel secure to me. But, you know, I also think I, I've also thought about that, that difference between how success was sold to us mm-hmm. and what success feels like now in our generation. Um, so I, I consider myself, I'm kind of on the Gen X millennial cusp. Uh, so let's say millennial for the case of this conversation. Um, that's just not what we, the life we get to have. That's not the, the situation that, that is going to be, you know, how things work for us. And that's, and that's fine. Um, as long as you take the moment to adjust to that reality, which took me a while when I was a little bit younger in my career, I, I, 
I definitely was not okay with feeling like I was job hopping. But now that I no longer ascribe any moral failing to it because it's a different economy, um, I don't, I do not like the instability, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong or right. It's just not ideal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Yeah, I'm embarking on freelancing. It's interesting. I I was talking to a friend and was like, I don't want to freelance. And then a couple of weeks later, I was like, oh, maybe I'll try freelancing on and see how it goes. I would say um, I, I work in activism right now and I love it so much. But I don't think I, I, I think, you know, sometime, maybe five years, maybe 10 years. At some point, I'll probably burn out because activism is really intense and really hard to, hard to deal with sometimes. And I think when I do hit that point, there's a pretty good chance that I'll freelance and see if I can get away with doing, you know, 20 hours a week or 30 hours a week instead of 40 and see if I can, you know, see, see if I can make a living in that manner without feeling like I'm overworking myself. May I ask, um, what kind of activism, like what does activism mean to you in this context? I currently work for a nonprofit by the name of fight for the future. And we do work, um, involving freedom of expression online. And we, so we fight against surveillance. We fight for privacy. We, to make sure that all people have the right to express themselves and not feel uh, oppressed or silenced by either governments or corporations or other humans who are jerks. Um, so that's that's what we focus on right now. I am currently working on an event by the name of Rock Against the TPP, which is going to be a series of concerts featuring Evangeline Lilly and Tom Morello and Talib Kweli, Anti-Flag, a whole bunch of bands, some local to each concert, some more national level, and teaching people about the negative impact that the TPP would have if we ratified it. And the TPP is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Just, that it is. Yeah. Um, so how... Was active, was it a choice? Well, of course it was a choice. Was it an active choice? Like, do you seek jobs in the the space or did you kind of fall into it and decide that this is a path that you would like to pursue for a while? Does that make sense? Kind of somewhere in between. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, yeah, so I, back in 2010, I volunteered for a Senate campaign for the only U.S. Senator who voted against the USA Patriot Act. And that was pretty fun, rewarding. It was just a volunteer gig. I wasn't doing much technical stuff. Um, then I, you know, I ended up working on the Obama campaign, which was very rewarding and very intense. Um, mm-hmm. After the Obama campaign, I decided to, you know, pop back into the private sector, not really thinking twice about it. I went to go get uh, a position at a at a company in Silicon Valley, and it was it was not a bad experience by any means, but it was not the same level of rewarding that I realized that I was seeking. You know, it wasn't. I didn't feel like I was making a positive change in, in people's lives and specifically in, in the lives of people who are oppressed and marginalized. So at that point, I decided to leave to go work for the Mozilla Foundation and start, you know, that was kind of an in-between. It was, it was the, the Mozilla Foundation is definitely more activism than, you know, the browser makers. Um, so that was, that was kind of me seeking out something that was mission driven a little bit more and, from there, I, I I then wound up at uh, Fight for the Future after meeting the founder at uh, Mozilla Festival, actually. Wow. That's a, I don't know, that's, I guess it's not a, it doesn't seem like a direct career path. I guess um, when I was little, I thought of, I thought I would go into, like, not go into politics myself, but go kind of into the political side of like maybe I'd be a speechwriter or or something like that. And so when I think of someone who worked on a presidential campaign, I still have that very like my high school view of someone who would then go on to work, you know, maybe locally in um, you know, for for a senator or or whatever. And so I don't think about the activist piece of working on a campaign and how that may or may not be fulfilled, I guess, depending upon the candidate. You watched a lot of West Wing when you were in high school, didn't you? I didn't. Oh, really? But I'm I'm a little too old for that. I'm t- <laughs> I'm a little too old for that. But um, I did go like 
there's this thing called the presidential classroom and they had like a journalistic track. And so like I went to Washington DC for a week and talked to a bunch of journalists and a bunch of like senators and, and sat on like subcommittee hearings. And, um, uh, so I, I don't know. I think about things from that kind of lens rather than, you know, and I, I very quickly decided that politics was in no way, shape or form something that I actually wanted to be involved with, um, at least not in that way. Um, but that that whole experience has really informed the way I think of things like campaigns. Incidentally, I also decided that I want nothing to do with politics. Um, the So working on the Obama campaign was incredible. And I really believed in President Obama, though he has done some things, especially regarding technology that and war that I, that I deeply disagree with. Um, overall, I'm, I'm pretty proud to have worked for him. But that year also showed me that on the whole, I don't want to work in electoral politics. I, I, I don't like it. Um, I loved what I did. I'm really glad I did what I did, but I, 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 it's not something that I saw myself doing long-term. So I wanted to be able to feel like I was making a difference and doing something you know, valuable for the world, but capital P politics is not for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that's how I wound up, you know, in the type of activism I'm in is it's still having that kind of impact without feeling like I have to find a politician who I agree with enough to to give so much time to, um, especially because I'm, I'm pretty far to the left of the Democratic Party. So finding a politician isn't really uh, likely. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've been feeling that lately, too. Which for me is especially interesting because I grew up in such a conservative area and my family is so conservative. And for me to come to this realization that I am very, very left-leaning has been very startling for me over the last six months or so. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, one of one of the uh, project managers at, at the Obama campaign said something really funny to me. We were talking about the... We're talking about the the density of you know people who are left leaning versus right leaning in cities and in rural areas, and he says, you know, it's funny. It turns out when you have to spend your life really close to a whole lot of people, you find you find yourself way to the left. Yep. <laughs> you find yourself caring about other people's well being. Yep, and I think that's a lot of it. You know, I grew up in rural Colorado, uh, farmers, um, people working on like oil pipelines. My grandfather was a a miner and a farmer. And, um, you know, so, so things like, um, you know, initiatives to be more environmentally friendly, maybe we move away from fossil fuels more, uh, really makes like the people I grew up with mad because that takes their jobs away. They work on the pipeline, like they work in the oil fields and, and so it feels very personal to them. And I'm like, yeah, but but our environment is dying. Sure. But, but I mean, it's so hard to, even if you can see the big picture, it's so hard to acknowledge it when it means, you know, giving up your well being. And mm-hmm. I, 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 I completely understand that, that sort of conflict. Yeah. Um, I, I really do wish that we as a people were better at when, when we are pushing for big changes for environmentalism, that, that could be, converting jobs, you know, instead of taking away and giving jobs to the people and, you know, that the whole warring battle, they're going to come take our jobs away kind of attitude. I, I wish we were better at taking, for example, pipeline workers and teaching them how to install solar panels or, you know, similar. Right. Well, and then, but then that plays, then you go into, okay, well, how do people pay for the solar panels? Because, you know, you're talking about low-income communities, and um, do we have subsidies so that you know, you know, or or like, are the towns dedicating you know lots of land for this, or you know, how is that happening? And there are currently some pretty great subsidies for solar, but um, one of the catches is basically for for the most part, and there are absolutely exceptions to this, but for the most part, you have to be able to pony up the cash and wait until tax day right. to recuperate that money, which, you know, a lot of people can't do. There is, however, a really great program in Oakland that is helping people to get and install solar panels and ultimately bring their electrical bills down to a few bucks a month, you know, because they're selling back power that they're using, that they're getting from the panels. And 
it's it's really giving people in in very rural areas, um, or I'm sorry, in, in very low income areas, an opportunity to be more environmentally friendly without feeling like they can't afford it. And that's so cool. I actually think I heard about that in the wake of um, Prince's passing because he helped fund a lot of this, which or was rumor is rumored to have, which is kind of how I heard about it, uh, which is awesome. It's just, how do we get this to everywhere? You know, how do we get this to small communities? Um, and then what are the implications for, you know, the power companies there? Like, I, I don't know what like actual physical logistics of wiring into the grid are like, and if they have the capacity for that, I don't know if that's a big deal or not. You know, I, it's just, there are a lot of interesting problems I think that come from initiatives like this. There are, there are kinds of things that I really, I really look forward to. Well, <laughs> I guess what it comes down to, I look forward to other people solving people like me, but not me because right now I'm working on <laughs> surveillance and privacy, <laughs> but you know, there are, there are people out there who, who are doing, doing the work and just, just need people to hear them out, you know? Yeah. It's, um, I don't know if you experience this, but I definitely do, which is where the bleeding heart, I guess, of my liberalism comes from is it's like, I want to do all of these things, but I only have so much time, so much knowledge and so much energy to be able to, to do things, you know? Don't I know it? (laughs) Well, we're pretty close to an hour. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about today? Um, you know, I, I am, I'm happy I got a chance to mention the Rock Against TPP. We're currently announcing, uh, tour dates, you know, uh, I think we just announced a bunch today or we're announcing tomorrow. So checking out rockagainstdp.org will give people the opportunity to see if it's coming to their city. Tickets are free and it's going to be, you know, there's going to be a teach-in hosted by Evangeline Lilly and followed by a really great concert. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm really looking forward to kicking that off in a few weeks. Yeah. I was just looking at the website as we were talking and there, there are four dates announced. Um, and so by the time this episode goes out, hopefully we'll have have all of them up and, and ready to go. Well, it's been great talking to you. Uh, how can people find out more about you online? I have a website at akibron.com. Um, that doesn't change very often, though. I'm also on Twitter at Gesa, which is G-E-S-A. And that I am very chatty on. I understand that. You can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, that's how we got Aki, uh, or would like to be a guest, please go to relay.fm forward slash LTOE and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, it'd be wonderful if you'd leave a review or star rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for less than or equal.